Well, we are in the book of Romans once this evening, again this evening. We want to take this paragraph uh, all the way through as we have worked through the book of Romans. We're in this final section of the life-changing relevance of uh, the gospel. We have seen in Romans 12 and verse 1, Paul lay out the mercies of God, his justification, uh, his sanctifying of us, and then that breaking forth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. See these mercies of God, and therefore give your body as a living sacrifice and your mind as transformed by the Holy Spirit renewing. And when this happens, there is to be humility in the context of the church. There is to be a self-denying love in the context of the church. There is to be, and one was asking for these this morning, uh, what, uh, how is love laid out here in Romans 12? Well, it's a principled love, it's a genuine love, it's a righteous love, it's an affectionate love, and it is a respectful love. And as Paul deals with the whole matter of love, Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, uh, he goes on to speak of a self-denying love even to our enemies. We see it begin in verse 14, loving your enemy by blessing. And then here's our, our verses for this evening. Let me begin reading at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never offend yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." We saw this morning that Paul is talking in chapter 12, 17 through 21, about our private relationships. And in, as a private person, we are to exercise this kind of love. It's a different thing in the public sphere, as we're going to come, Romans 13, just the very next verses, 1 through 7, are going to talk about the civil governor, and how he does not bear the sword in vain, he has a right to make it graphic, to make it to be very literal. He has the right to take the sword and to execute someone because they have committed crimes against society. That is not for us. The sword is not to be given to us as private individuals. And the sword that is given by God to the civil governor is not to be relinquished and he is not to be naive as if just loving man is going to be good. No, after the flood, knowing how man is, knowing the depravity of his heart, it is after the flood that the capital punishment by the civil government is ushered in. We saw this morning the prohibition of vindictiveness, 
the positive requirement of making peace. And with that, let's uh, come to our passage seeing the overall thrust. If you had to boil it down to one slide, what is the passage teaching us? Take your enemy and so love him so that he will become a gospel friend. Now we know that there is much more that's involved. It's impossible for man to convert, but our goal is to take our enemies and make them to be gospel friends. Well, with that, let's come to your handout sheet if you care to use it. Roman number one, the prohibition of vengeance. Verse 19, it could be the same title of the prohibition of vindictiveness that we saw verse 17 this morning. But here we are jumping into verse 19. Notice with me, A, the affectionate address in avoiding personal vengeance. Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves. One has written, Paul slips in this address, beloved, which is particularly appropriate. He knows how hard this is, and he is requiring of them love. And so the believers are entreated by the voice of love, my beloved friends, show love by the voice of love they are urged to walk in love. Secondly, B, the key duty. The key duty of avoiding personal vengeance. Never avenge yourselves. There are things that the civil government may need to do. There may be things that a dad or mom in a family in that local limited government that God has ordained that they will need to do. There may be some rather strong discipline that needs to come in the context of the local church and those who lead the church. But here, our concern is about our personal rights, those things that we are to exercise when we are wronged, and when we are wronged, we are told, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. The verb here, avenge, it is the same word just in the verbal form of the noun that we find later in this verse. So see, regarding us, never avenge yourselves. Then later of God, God says, verse 19b, vengeance is mine. Don't avenge yourself. Vengeance is God's. It's the same word. We are to never pay back evil because God is the one who's going to pay back evil. Responding to evil is a recurring theme in this paragraph. There it is, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. There it is in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Here it is in verse 19, never avenge yourselves. And it's coming again in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Why does Paul need to repeat this theme in these verses over and over again? Calvin, 
We need repeated direction here because of our own love of self and our innate pride, which makes us very easy on our own faults and very hard on those of others. You see what he is saying. What we, if we are wise, we will recognize in ourselves. We can come up with all sorts of extenuating circumstances as to why I failed to do this or why I did do that. When someone else does the same thing, we may not be so patient at all. And all of us have this inclination to be vindicated. We have this, uh, this desire uh, to get even with those who have wronged us. Paul commands here that however grievously we may be injured, we are not to seek revenge, but to commit the offense to the Lord. So the affectionate address, A, the key duty of avoiding personal vengeance. Now thirdly, see the divine reason. The divine reason for avoiding personal vengeance but leave it to the wrath of God. There's a strong adversative here in the middle part, but don't do this, but do do this. Leave place for wrath. Leave some space for God to work. You can tell how my mind works as it goes to think in terms of a place to work if you've got a left guard in football pulling around to outside the right tackle, that right tackle knows he does not want to be lollygagging. He is going to push his men to the inside and get out of the way and leave a place, leave room for that pulling 375, 300 pound, 300 pound a guard to come and clear out the path. That tackle needs to think in terms, I need to move. And whoever is in the way, that guy who's got up ahead of steam is going to do a better job of snow plowing whatever is in front of him than what I will do. And that's the thinking here. Leave place for God. Leave room for God to step in and to work. Getting even with sinful man for all of his rebellions against God is something that is better left to God. Calvin again. Commit to the Lord the right of judging. Therefore, since it is not lawful to usurp the office of God, it is not lawful to seek revenge. Otherwise, we take for ourselves the judgment of God who will have this office, this work, reserved for himself. So get out of the way and let God work. Now, God may work and bring some judgments in time. God may work through his civil governor and someone's head may be severed from the rest of his body. 
but it seems that the primary emphasis here is just leave this whole matter to God. However he wants to deal with it, he's going to deal with it in that way, but there is a great coming day of judgment where all wrongs will be righted. It remains only now to see, fourthly D, the scriptural promise. The scriptural promise for avoiding personal vengeance. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. For it is written, perfect tense, it has been written and it stands and it abides. It is scripture, it is God's promise. This ought to settle the matter for us. God has spoken. And where did he speak? Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Murray comments, the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. We may feel as though that we need to direct God in his vengeance. God, I I need you to get off of your throne so that I can work. And Paul is telling us that God wants his throne back. We are to leave it to him. (coughs) Pardon me, I'm getting a little tickle in my throat. We need to think, though, how it is when we get angry and words may even just slip out of our mouth where we are announcing damnation from God to some individual that we do not like very much at the moment. And here we are to recognize that is not our business at all. And we may not really even think of what we are saying when we are asking that God should damn someone. But that is not our business. Our natural bent is to be so angry that we, in, our, in being upset, we say things that we ought not to say at all. Oftentimes, we may feel like God is taking too long Lord, there's this horrible thing that happened to me, and it was two years ago, and I haven't seen any lightning drop from heaven yet. What's going on? And we may want to direct God. Our feelings of timing really don't matter, do they? It is up to God what he does in judgment, and it is up to God when he acts in judgment. It is faith for us to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care upon God, and to place all our interests in Jesus the judge. But we have to think of the Lord Jesus, what his example is for us. And his example is given to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. You may like to turn there as I read those verses to us. First Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if in, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, living, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are multiple things in these verses. What I would like you to see is that there is one way that Jesus is not like us in his suffering. When he suffers, the just for the unjust, our sins are loaded onto him. His perfect righteousness comes to us. There is no way that when we suffer, there is anything like that going on. But Peter is saying that there is a way that we are to be like Jesus. He left us a binding example. The way that he went through suffering by not reviling, by not calling judgment down from heaven to destroy anyone who was on the bad side of Jesus. He was trusting himself to God and we are supposed to do the same. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, then there is to be this vengeance that is set aside as we seek to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Well, there it is, the prohibition of vengeance from verse 19. Now, in Romans 12 and verse 20, the positive requirement of showing love. First of all, A, the practical expressions of your agape love to your enemy. Here it is in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, we're not talking about a nation at war. We're talking about an individual who is suffering as an individual. And the practical expression is, you look at your enemy and you're just not breathing threats. It's not that you're so full of anger that you can't even see what's going on in this world. You look at him or her, you see what his or her need is, and then out of love, you try to meet that need. If he's hungry, you give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. Now, secondly, B, the conversion goal of your agape love to your enemy. Romans 12 and verse 20, now the latter part. For by so doing, you will heap coals, burning coals, on his head. 
Now, that sounds very strange to our ear in 2024, doesn't it? But observe the close connection between verse 20 and verse 21. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Whatever this is of putting burning coals on somebody's head, it sounds awful, but whatever it is, it is evidently something that is a good thing. It is something of love overcoming evil. Well, notice with me, first of all, the historical background. The historical background. Wouldn't you know, in 1953... Some Egyptologist says, you know what I just discovered? I discovered that the Egyptians actually have a ritual in which they talk about taking a censer, some sort of metal type of bowl, and they put hot coals on it, and they've got a stick in their hand, and with this thing on their head, they come in, in, in the front of those that they have offended, and it's a way of them acknowledging their fault. It still sounds strange to me. I wouldn't want to be involved in it. What does it mean? Does it mean that I am so bothered by what I did to you that it's like this is burning in my mind. It is deeply troubling me. Well, I don't know that he wrote the explanation, but I think it's a huge step in the right direction for us to understand something of this ritual in uh, ancient uh, Egypt. In the ancient Mideast, I found this in two of my commentary friends. One would speak of this custom found in Egyptian literature whereby a penitent person carried coals of fire in a bowl on his head. In the Egyptian literature and in Proverbs, the coals of fire is a dynamic symbol of change of mind which takes place as a result of a deed of love. I'm wearing these hot coals because you did something nice for me, and this is an expression of a change of mind that I have towards you. Well, let me read to you Proverbs 15, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. There's something of the history of this analogy and the likely meaning of the burning coals on the head. Morris is so bold as to say, there can be no doubt that Paul is referring to the change in the enemy which deeds of love affect. Therefore, we should use deeds of love to turn the enemy into a friend. Turn the enemy into a friend by bringing the gospel to him in our example and hopefully eventually in our words. Murray, it is that 
the heaping coals of fire on the head refers to the burning sense of shame and remorse constrained in our enemy by the kindness that we shower upon him. And he says it's going to be either a burning shame or the softening of penitence. But either way, if you do this thing of kindness, you have reason to hope on the other side that his meanness to you is going to be lessened. And I don't know that we can really go that far as to say that there is some sort of automatic principle. But do you see the fittingness of bringing John 3.16 into this paragraph this morning? Here is our God. He looks on that sinful mass of humanity, the world, and there is nothing lovely in them. But he loves the unlovely, and he gives that great gift of his Son to bring them good so that they may believe and not perish, but have everlasting life. And then our God has the right, I almost said the nerve, but he certainly has the backbone to say to us, if you have seen me love the unlovely in this way, then I am expecting you as my sons and daughters to love the unlovely and work for their good. Therefore, feed the enemy when he is hungry, give a drink to the enemy when he is thirsty. Instead of being carried away with anger and hate, believers are to be suffused with love. And what is it that I can do to make this enemy into a friend in the cause of the gospel? Let's just think for a moment of the Apostle Paul. Has it struck you as it has struck me that in a number of those public trials, it's like Paul has forgotten he's on trial. The main thing is not so much that he get an innocent verdict. The main thing seems to be that he would have an opportunity of freely sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that seems to be his greater concern. It's this, uh, there are enemies there. He's able to rise above the fact that they have done him wrong and he works for their conversion. The believer who knows that he or she has been forgiven loves God much. And if we love God much, we will do what is pleasing in God's sight. Aliyah writes, writes, Indeed, you should repay evil with every imaginable form of kindness. It is better for a man to be pricked by a sense of shame now than to suffer the punishment of the fire later. But this is going to require on your part and my part that our self-centeredness gets set to the side and we have a big enough view of what God is able to do that we want the gospel to come to this one, that one, who is our enemy before the great and final day. Roman number one, the prohibition of vengeance. 
the Roman numeral two, the positive requirement of love. And now thirdly, the summary requirement of overcoming evil. Notice with me, A, the natural flow in this present evil world. What's the natural flow? Well, it is to be overcome by evil. The meaning then would be that we are not to be vanquished ethically by the evil that is piled upon us. On the contrary, by well-doing, we are to be instruments of quenching the animosity and the ill-doing of those who persecute and maltreat us. Now, I want us to ask a question here. What happens when a professing Christian is worn down by persecution? just gets sick, just gets tired of all the animosity that has come against him or her. Well, nothing good comes from it. But I want to share with you the historical example of Thomas Cranmer. He was the Protestant Archbishop of the Church of England during the time of the young Protestant King Edward VI. Edward VI, for those of us who don't have eidetic imagery in our heads, he ruled from 1547 to 1553, from age 9 to age 15. He died of tuberculosis. His dad was Henry VIII, you know, with all the wives. And when he died, his half-sister became queen. She's known in history as Bloody Mary. She was Roman Catholic. She was reaching out in vengeance against all of those Protestants who had been in power, and Cranmer was one of them. Queen Mary had Thomas Cranmer imprisoned in very harsh conditions for three years as his enemies worked to get Cranmer to recant his Protestant faith that was based on the Bible. Cranmer is a big fish. We're not going to kill him immediately. We're going to work to get him to say that Roman Catholicism is right. And so that's what they do. When the deprivation of the three years of imprisonment did not work, Cranmer's enemies changed their tactics. They continued to confine him, but they put him in a lavish place to live and gave him a lavish lifestyle. Remember, he was archbishop. He would be used to a very high standard of living. And they told him that if you simply sign this piece of paper, you will be allowed to live more than this you are going to be restored to the, your position as Archbishop of the Church of England. The first document that his enemies prepared for him was a more general statement. Offensive, but not nearly as bad as what it could have been. And to his shame, he signed the document. And then his enemies brought him a second document, which was worse than the first. 
Then they brought him a third document that was worse than the second, and a fourth that was worse than the third, and a fifth, finally, which was just absolutely horrible, and he signed it. He got worn down by his enemies. He was overcome by evil. We need to recognize when temptation comes, we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. There's the natural flow. Secondly, B, the gracious requirement in this present evil world. The natural flow is we're overcome by evil. But the gracious requirement, the requirement of grace, is that we are to overcome evil with good. All ahead again. Shame your opponents into submission. Conquer them, not by engaging in retaliation, but with genuine kindness. Do not allow evil to conquer you, as would happen if you adopted such tactics. Conquer evil with good. Someone is mean to you, you use that as you did it first, I'm going to give it back to you. Then you have just been conquered by evil. We're to consider the nobility of agape love, where instead of allowing ourselves to get angry like we would naturally, we seek to imitate what God would do in his agape love in giving his son. The noble aim to have the control of your spirit when someone is mean to you for you to say, Here's my goal. I'm going to turn that enemy, by the grace of God, into my friend. What a wonderfully noble goal. Would you like to hear what happened to Thomas, Thomas Cranmer in the end? Well, the queen, even after he signed the fifth statement, the Queen Bloody Mary decided that Cranmer still needed to be burned at the stake. Queen Mary's deputies held a big party in church on the day of Cranmer's appointed death. His enemies enjoyed a sermon that celebrated the fact that they had broken the former leader of the Protestants. His enemies planned to then lead him from the church to burn him at the stake. In the end, do you think Cranmer got angry, yelled at his enemies, cursed his enemies who pressured him to sin, and lambasted them for lying to him? Well, I wouldn't be telling you about him, would I, if he had? No, in the end, Thomas Cranmer quit thinking about himself and the preserving of his own life here in comfort and he started thinking about turning his enemies into gospel friends. After the sermon, Cranmer, rising from praying on his knees, said that he desired before his death to exhort the gathering so God might be glorified and themselves edified. He then spoke on the danger of a love for the world the duty of obedience to their majesties, of love to one another, and the necessity of the rich ministering to the needs 
of the poor. And then he said, And now as I come to the last end of my life, where hangs all my life past and all my life to come, either to live with my master Christ forever in joy or else to be in pain forever with the wicked in hell. And I see before my eyes presently either heaven ready to receive me or else hell ready to swallow me up. I shall therefore declare to you my very faith how I believe without any shade of duplicity, for now is no time to be dishonest. Whatever I have said or written in times past. First, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in every article of the Catholic that is the universal faith, Every word and sentence taught by our Savior, Jesus Christ, his apostles and prophets in the New and the Old Testament. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience, more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life, and that is the publishing of a writing contrary to the truth which now here I renounce and refuse. I left out a little detail. I skipped over it. When they got the fifth statement signed by Thomas Cranmer, the head of the Church of England, they published it through all the land so that everyone would know that this Protestant leader of the Church of England was now an avowed Roman Catholic. It's the worst thing that I've done in my whole life, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth that I thought in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be. And that is all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my removal and imprisonment, wherein I have written many things untrue. And because my hand so offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall be burned first." And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and as Antichrist with all his false doctrine. Upon the conclusion of this unexpected declaration, amazement and indignation were conspicuous in every part of the church. The Catholics were completely foiled, their object being frustrated. Cranmer, like Samson, having completed a greater ruin upon his enemies in the hour of his death than he did in his whole life. Cranmer would have proceeded in the exposure of the popish doctrines, but the murmurs of the Roman Catholics drowned out his voice 
and the Catholic Church leader gave an order to lead the heretic away, the savage command was directly obeyed, and the lamb about to suffer was torn from his stand to the place of slaughter, insulted all the way by the taunts and the verbal abuse of the angry monks and friars. With his thoughts intent on a higher object than the empty threats of man, Thomas Cranmer reached the spot, died with the blood of other recent martyrs. There he knelt for a short time in earnest devotion and then arose that he might undress and prepare for the fire. Two Roman Catholic deputies who had been parties in earlier prevailing on Cranmer to renounce his Protestant faith now endeavored to draw him off again from the truth. However, Cranmer was steadfast and immovable in what he had just professed and publicly taught. A chain was provided to bind him to the stake, and after it had tightly encircled him, fire was put to the fuel, and the flames began soon to ascend. Then were the glorious sentiments of the martyr made manifest. Then it was that, stretching out his right hand, he held it without shrinking in the fire until it was burnt to a cinder. Even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand, this unworthy right hand. His body did endure the burning with such steadfastness that he seemed to have no more than the stake to which he was bound. It's like he wasn't in the fire. His eyes were lifted up to heaven and he repeated, this unworthy right hand as long as his voice would allow him. And using often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the greatness of the flame, he gave up the spirit. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He became so preoccupied with how he could do good to these men in the gospel that he came up with this graphic contrast. There's this right hand and there is this heart. And what is the true me, what is in my heart is different than what's in this right hand. And he gave that graphic chant that those who were there would never forget all the rest of their days. Let's pray. Father, apart from revival, our society is likely to descend into a greater intolerance of biblical Christianity. And we pray, our God, that you would give us grace for such a day. Father, particularly for those who are of younger years, 
Make them to be steadfast in the faith. May they be willing to seal their belief even with their own lives, believing the truth of the gospel from the depth of their beings. Father, help us to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Our suffering is not likely to be the same as Cranmer's, but suffering we will have. Give to us that kind of gospel motivation to see enemies turned into friends. We beg this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.